Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This week, we're going to be doing our first in a series of looks back at the 1980s movies of Martin Scorsese. But rather than do them in any kind of traditional order, like alphabetical or chronological, I'm going to start with my favorite Martin Scorsese movie of the decade, The Color of Money. Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, in a Martin Scorsese picture. He's got the eye, he's got the stroke, he's got the flake. Vincent's the best. We got a racehorse here, a thoroughbred. You make him feel good, I teach him how to run. I'm not your daddy, I'm not your boyfriend, so don't be playing games with me. I'm your partner. I love this. You're an incredible flake. But that's a gift. I made money. I lost money. I got half of me that says I got a hold of the best thing that I ever seen and half of me that says it just ain't worth it. Why don't you take a walk? 500 bucks says you choke right now. You used me. Yes, I did. I'm going to leave. This is Fast Eddie Felson. Who the hell are you? 25 years ago, I won my share of medals. But it was over for me before it really got started. Hungry again. See some heavy legend action. I want his best game. You want my game? You couldn't deal with my game, Jack. You're outmanned. I'm gonna beat him, you know. What makes you so sure? Touchstone Pictures presents. You smell what I smell? Smoke? Money. The color of money. The story of The Color of Money begins all the way back in 1955, when 27-year-old author Walter Tevis wrote a two-page short story for Collier's magazine called The Big Hustle. Tevis had been writing short stories for a few years, and The Big Hustle would be the second story he would sell to a national magazine after The Best in the Country was picked up by Esquire a year earlier. He enjoyed writing the story, as he did enjoy writing a number of other stories and in other genres. But there was something about the big hustle, about a pool shark who sees something of himself in a young pool hustler called Babe that stuck with the author. He had been playing pool for more than 15 years at that point, and he had even worked in a pool hall while attending the University of Kentucky, where he graduated with an MFA in writing in 1954. Tevis would pick up the idea again after selling more short stories to the likes of The American Magazine and The Saturday Evening Post, updating a story about actors he had been writing that just wasn't working for him, making it about pool players, and selling the new story called The Hustler to Playboy. They would publish it in their January 1957 issue. Tevis would continue expanding the idea about an older pool player and a young hustler finishing his first novel, also titled The Hustler, by the middle of 1958. New York City-based Harper & Brothers would publish the novel in early 1959, and within a few months, writer-producer-director Robert Rosen, 
whose credits had included the classic John Garfield movie Body and Soul, the James Mason drama Island in the Sun, and the 1950 Best Picture winner All the King's Men, had purchased the screen rights to the novel, setting the project up at United Artists. While screenwriter Sidney Carroll got to work on adapting the novel into a workable screenplay, Rosen started considering actors for the lead roles. Bobby Darren, the popular singer who was starting to work his way into movies, was an early contender for the role of the young pool hustler, Fast Eddie Felsen. But a delay in the intended November 1959 production start date allowed Paul Newman to take the role. After shooting overruns on Cleopatra, canceled a movie called Two for the Seesaw that Newman was supposed to shoot with Elizabeth Taylor. Other actors Rosen would cast in The Hustler included legendary comedic actor Jackie Gleason in a rare dramatic role, Piper Laurie as Eddie's would-be love interest, George C. Scott as Burt Gordon, a professional gambler who stakes Eddie's hustles, future Jaws mayor Murray Hamilton as one of Eddie's marks, and former boxing champion Jake LaMotta as a bartender. Production on the film would finally begin in New York City in March of 1961, which was now a 20th Century Fox movie, and would shoot in Fox's CinemaScope widescreen film format, all the better to see Gleason and Newman perform many of their own pool shots. The $2 million movie would open in September 1961 at two theaters in New York City, where it would set a house record for more than $59,000 in ticket sales in its first six days at the Paramount Theater in Times Square. The president of Fox was expecting the film to gross around $4 million when it was all said and done, but The Hustler would end up grossing nearly double that, with more than $7.6 million in ticket sales. At the 34th Academy Awards, it would be nominated for nine awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and acting nominations for Paul Newman, Piper Laurie, Jackie Gleason, and George C. Scott, who, true to form, refused his nomination. The Hustler would lose Best Picture and Best Director to Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins's West Side Story, but it would win Best Black and White Art Direction and Best Black and White Cinematography. After the publication of The Hustler, Walter Tevis would continue to write, but he would spend most of his time teaching English literature and creative writing at Ohio University. His next novel, 1963's The Man Who Fell to Earth, would be adapted into a movie by Nicholas Rogue in 1976 starring David Bowie, while his 1983 novel The Queen's Gambit was recently adapted into an acclaimed Netflix miniseries starring Anya Taylor-Joy. But Fast Eddie Felsen was never that far out of his heart, and after finishing The Queen's Gambit, he would start writing his sixth novel, The Color of Money. The novel is set 20 years after the events of The Hustler. Fast Eddie Felsen now operates a pool hall of his own and finds himself wanting to find his old nemesis, Minnesota Fats, after seeing a look-alike on television. Desperate to get his life back on track, Eddie tracks Fats down to the Florida Keys, where he convinces the retired player to join him on a national tour. The two men hit the road with their eyes on a major tournament in Lake Tahoe. When Tevis finished the novel, before it was even sold to a publisher, he would send a copy to Paul Newman as a tribute and thanks to the actor who made his most famous character world famous. 
Warner Books would buy the rights to the novel and would publish it on August 1, 1984. But Tevis would not enjoy the great reviews the book would get. A lifelong smoker, he would pass away from lung cancer only eight days after publication. Newman wasn't entirely in love with what he read, but he would purchase the screen rights to The Color of Money himself. And although he would not act as the producer in a traditional sense, he would set the wheels in motion to get the movie made. In September 1984, after rejecting a screenplay by Tevis that was a straight adaptation of the novel, Newman would place a call to Martin Scorsese, who was deep into shooting his latest movie After Hours in New York City, and invited the director to his home in Malibu when the director had some time to talk about working together on The Color of Money. Newman had wanted to work with Scorsese since seeing Raging Bull, feeling the director was the only person possible to make magic happen on this film. Newman would also ask Scorsese to recommend a writer who he thought could bring a gritty realism to the screenplay. So Scorsese would call up Richard Price, the New York writer whose novels The Wanderers and Blood Brothers had been turned into movies in the late 1970s, who Scorsese had been looking to work with on a movie, even though Price had yet to be credited as a screenwriter at this point of his career. Price and Scorsese would fly to Los Angeles in February 1985 and have their first meeting with Newman at the beach house the actor shared with his wife, Joanne Woodward. Price would tell the New York Times during the publicity tour for The Color of Money that Newman would meet them fully tanned and eating a grapefruit. The three would sit on Newman's deck facing the ocean and talk about the film Newman wanted to make. While he liked the book, he had a different idea for where Eddie Felsen should be at this point in his life. That day, Scorsese and Price would agree to make the film, and they would spend all afternoon hammering out a basic plot to the movie. Now, you have to remember that back in February 1985, Scorsese was a well-respected filmmaker, but he wasn't yet the Martin Scorsese that's held in such high regard today. The Color of Money would be his ninth feature dramatic narrative in 14 years, most of which were not big hits. Even Raging Bull was only the 25th highest grossing film of 1980, its $23.3 million gross only a few hundred thousand dollars higher than the much maligned box office bomb Xanadu, and actually $20,000 less than Bob Guccione's X-rated nearly porn Caligula while his 1976 film Taxi Driver, his highest grossing film to date with $28.2 million, was not as big a hit in 1976 as movies like Universal's much derided World War II film Midway. But even though he didn't really understand pool games like 8-Ball and 9-Ball, and he wasn't so keen on working on a sequel to a 25-year-old film, Scorsese knew he wanted to work with an actor like Paul Newman and a writer like Richard Price, and this might be his only opportunity to do either, let alone both. With the basic storyline in place, Price would spend time in various pool halls in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York City, observing players and how they played. After a month, Price would return to Newman and Scorsese with 80 pages about Eddie's road to redemption, which caught both the actor and the director off guard. It didn't feel like what Newman had discussed with the two men back in February. Newman wanted to spend more time exploring what aging does to a man 
after he's lost his big shot early in his adult life, and the fear of losing it again, getting so close to that second chance. While Price was interested in things getting rather mean for Eddie, because the light at the end of his tunnel would be that much brighter. But the men weren't that far off from where the other wanted to be, so they would continue meeting on a regular basis in New York, in Scorsese's offices, at their apartments, and at numerous restaurants. Newman, for his part, would praise Scorsese and Price after the film was completed, mentioning that the three of them would come up with great ideas and nobody was worried about keeping score on who came up with what. Price, though, was desperate for Newman and Scorsese's approval. I was anxious to show those guys how good I was, he would tell the New York Times, because I perceived both of them on a level of accomplishment that I was not. I was knocked off balance by the wattage of their iconage. I wanted very badly for them to be impressed by me. The big breakthrough for the trio was realizing what was needed at the start. Eddie needed to have become the very thing that he hated in the first movie. The George C. Scott character, the man who stakes younger players for a sizable cut of the profits. Eddie no longer plays pool, and he hates himself for it. But after meeting a young hotshot player named Vincent Loria, Eddie decides his best bet to get away from selling cheap liquor to second-rate dive bars and pool halls is to take this kid on the road to work on his skills as a pool hustler. Along with Vincent's girlfriend, Carmen, the two men hit the road as Eddie tries to teach the pair about the art of the hustle. But Vincent constantly gets frustrated with having to play below his abilities and constantly gets jealous when Eddie and the more game Carmen play up lovers in order to hustle up players. Finally, at a pool hall run by an old acquaintance of Eddie's in Chicago, Vince and Eddie almost part ways when Vince's ego scares off a big mark just to show off his skills to the other players. But when Eddie gets hustled hard by a young shark in front of Vince and Carmen, Eddie gives them their share of the winnings to date, tells them he can't teach them anything else, and takes off. Eddie heads back to Chicago to work on his game at his friend's pool hall. He starts swimming and he gets new glasses. He starts to practice playing nine ball, a completely different beast than the eight ball he had played years before, and enters the nine ball classic competition in Atlantic City that he was going to be taking Vincent and Carmen to. There, he not only comes across the pair, but Julian, the player Eddie was staking when he meets Vince, and Eddie's sometime girlfriend Janelle, who has come to support her man. As one would expect, Eddie and Vince end up being paired to play each other, but not in the final as most other writers would set it up, or even in the semifinals, but in a quarterfinal game. Eddie beats Vince, but later learns that Vince threw the game because he could get good odds on Eddie's win, giving Eddie an envelope filled with $8,000. During his semifinal game, Eddie forfeits not wanting to be there, knowing he might not have deserved to be there. On his way out, he stops where Carmen and Vincent are sitting in the front row of the crowd watching and gives Vincent back the muddy. Eddie meets Janelle in the lobby of the casino, where the tournament is being held, ready to leave, when Carmen comes to them, trying to return the money to Eddie. Eddie doesn't want the money, but he agrees to meet Vincent in a player's practice room to play for it. 
The story ends with Eddie shooting the break on their game. Eddie Felsen is back. At one point, Price, Scorsese, and Newman tried to include a scene with Minnesota Fats in the story and sent a copy of the script to Jackie Gleason, but everyone agreed it felt like an afterthought. But who to play Vincent, Eddie's young protege? They needed someone who could play cocky and arrogant, but also soft and warm. And with a budget of only $15 million, a star who would be willing to take a pay cut in order to work with Paul Newman and Martin Scorsese. Scorsese's first choice was Tom Cruise, who was fast becoming a star thanks to 1983's Risky Business, but whose last film was the troubled 1985 Ridley Scott film Legend. Cruise absolutely wanted to work with Newman and Scorsese, and he would agree to star in the film once he was done shooting his then-current film, Top Gun. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, whose only film credit was playing Al Pacino's sister in 1983's Scarface, would win the role of Carmen after Scorsese saw more than 100 actresses for the role. Helen Shaver, the Canadian actress who was receiving critical praise in the fall of 1985, as a university professor who falls in love with another woman while awaiting a divorce in Reno, in Donna Deitch's Desert Hearts, would get cast as Janelle. John Turturro and Forrest Whitaker would get supporting roles as pool players, and Scorsese would feature professional pool players like Steve Miserec, Keith McCready, and Grady Matthews, as well as friends like Iggy Pop and Price in small cameos. It would also be the fifth time Martin Scorsese would use his father, Charles, in a small role. And if you look very closely at around the 1 hour, 30 minute, and 38 second mark, you can see Scorsese himself doing a break at a pool table. The cameo lasts half a second. Behind the scenes, Scorsese would assemble one of his best team of collaborators. Besides Thelma Schoonmaker who had known and worked with Scorsese since she edited his very first film, 1967's Who's That Knocking at My Door, Scorsese would hire Michael Ballhaus, the German cinematographer who shot many of Rainer Werner Fassbender's movies and had just finished shooting After Hours, to shoot this film. Robbie Robertson, a longtime friend of Scorsese's, who was one of the founding members of the band, would write the score for the film. Boris Levin, the famed production designer of Giant, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, and Scorsese's New York, New York, would help the filmmaker bring the sets to life with the help of Karen O'Hara, a set decorator for whom Color of Money would only be her third film credit, but would become a legend herself over the next three and a half decades. And Richard Bruno, who had helped create costumes for Westworld, Chinatown, and New York, New York, would assist in making all the actors look good in their threads. Wanting to prove he could make a major studio film on schedule and on budget to go along with his new sobriety from drugs and alcohol, Scorsese would briefly consider shooting the color money in and around Toronto, but the area didn't have the kind of dirty, dingy Americana that he was looking for for the film. So when production began on January 21, 1986, the vast majority of the film would be shot in the greater Chicago area, the first and, to date, only time he's ever shot a movie primarily in the Windy City. Newman and Cruz were expected to perform most of their own pool shots on camera, 
And both men, with the help of professional pool player Michael Siegel, who played himself in the 1980 James Coburn, Omar Sharif hustler comedy, The Baltimore Bullet, would constantly practice when they weren't filming. They each would have a pool table installed in their apartments rented for them during production. For Newman, who never stopped playing pool for long after making The Hustler, it wasn't so hard, and he would end up making every shot you see him make on camera. Cruz would also start to excel at playing nine ball, but there would be one complicated trick shot that Scorsese and Schoonmaker would need to employ a bit of editing trickery to cover that it was actually Siegel who was making that shot on camera. The shoot would run rather smoothly outside of one day when Newman took Cruz to a local racetrack so the older actor could introduce the younger actor to one of his biggest passions, race car driving. So, yeah, we can directly blame Paul Newman for Days of Thunder, but I digress. When production wrapped at the end of March 1986, Scorsese did what he set out to do. Complete a movie, on time, and on budget. But he actually finished several days ahead of schedule and half a million dollars under budget. Thelma Shoemaker was busy editing in New York, and Robbie Robertson was working on the score in Los Angeles while Scorsese was still shooting the movie in Chicago. Post-production on the movie ran so smoothly that Scorsese was able to show the heads of Walt Disney Pictures, who had picked up the film in Turnaround from 20th Century Fox, his final cut of the film in early summer. Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and the heads of Touchstone Pictures, the adult label Disney would use to release the film, were all ecstatic at the end of the screening and they would decide to move the release of the film up from its originally planned Christmas platform release to mid-October, confident in the film's commercial chances. The film would have two benefit premieres before opening. The first at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City on October 8th would raise more than $210,000 for the actor's studio, while in Los Angeles six days later, the premiere would raise more than $135,000 for the Scott Newman Foundation, the anti-drug foundation Newman would found after his son died of a drug overdose in 1978. But while the studio claimed to have confidence in the star power of the film, they pulled their punches when the film was released on October 17th. While movies like Crocodile Dundee, Deadly Friend, Jumpin' Jack Flash and Tough Guys were opening in more than a thousand theaters nationwide, Disney decided to give the color money a more moderate national release of only 635 theaters. They needn't have worried. The film would gross $6.35 million in its opening weekend, good for second place nationwide for overall box office, but its $10,000 per screen average would be the highest of all major releases that week, easily doubling the number two film in per screen average, Crocodile Dundee. The only film that had a higher PSA that week was the two screen opening weekend release of Alex Cox's Sid and Nancy. In its second week, The Color of Money would add another 182 screens nationwide, and it would retain both second place in the national box office with $5.25 million in ticket sales, and having the highest per-screen average of all major studio releases. 
in its third week, it would add another 366 screens. And once again, it would come in second place to Crocodile Dundee in overall national box office with another $5.29 million in ticket sales. And it would still have the highest per screen average. In week four, it would still come in second place overall to Crocodile Dundee, but it would also come in second place in per screen average to Dundee. Ditto week five. It would finally fall to fifth place in week six, being beaten by three new releases, including An American Tale and the final theatrical release of Song of the South. It would remain in the top ten until its tenth week, and by the time Disney stopped tracking the film in late January 1987, the final ticket tally would be $52.29 million, nearly double what Taxi Driver had grossed a decade earlier. It would remain his highest-grossing film until the release of Cape Fear in 1991, and as of April 2021, it is still his eighth highest-grossing film unadjusted, earning more back than more celebrated Scorsese movies like Goodfellas, The Age of Innocence, and Casino. The critical consensus for the film was mostly positive. The two-page ad in the October 17th New York Times provided blurbs from the likes of Gene Shallot of The Today Show, Peter Travers of People Magazine when he was still a well-respected critic, David Anson of Newsweek, Bruce Williamson of Playboy, and Richard Schickel of Time. The newspaper's lead critic, Vincent Canby, would chime in that the film was lacking in narrative shapeliness, but made up for that in the spectacle of three fully realized main characters, and would call Master Antonio a revelation, saying that her performance in Scarface was hardly preparation for what she does here. He would conclude that The Color of Money wasn't on the same level as Mean Streets or Raging Bull, but it was still a stunning vehicle. About the only two major critics of the day who didn't like the movie were Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who would give the film two thumbs down on their weekly show, the only time a Martin Scorsese movie would get that ignoble rating from the duo. When the Academy Award nominations for 1986 movies were announced in February of 1987, the film would get four nods. Paul Newman for Best Actor, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio for Supporting Actress, Richard Price for Best Adapted Screenplay, and Boris Levin and Karen O'Hara for Best Art Direction. For Levin, it would be his ninth and final Oscar nomination, having passed away six days before the film's opening. Of course, Newman would win his first and only competitive acting Oscar after seven losses and a Lifetime Achievement Award presented to him just the previous year. Newman could not accept that award as he was in Chicago shooting The Color of Money, and he wasn't at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion when Betty Davis announced him the winner. He didn't want to be devastated another time if he didn't win, but he would be there in 1994 when Tom Cruise presented him with the Academy's Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award. What I can tell you about what The Color of Money meant to me when it was released in 1986 was that it was one of the defining moments of my movie-going life. Sure, I had heard of Martin Scorsese by 1986, and I had seen several of his movies on cable or on VHS, 
But this was the first time I had seen a Martin Scorsese movie in a movie theater first run. And to borrow an oft-used cliché, it blew my brain to the back of the theater. Now understand the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz wasn't some boxy little theater that was carved into whatever space it could fit in. The Rio was a single-screen movie theater built in 1949 that sat 938 people and was the place where movies like E.T., the Star Wars films, and the Indiana Jones films would open in the area. It had, outside of the Fox Theater in Watsonville, the biggest screen in the county. It had two separate seating areas, one for regular seating and one in the back quarter of the theater called loge seating, which was a little more cushiony, a little wider, and 50 cents more expensive. Since I could get in the theater for free anyway, being a manager at another local theater within the same chain, I'd always sit in the first row of the loge seats. But even then, my brain flew back farther than the length of most cookie-cutter theaters that have been built in the past quarter century. Michael Ballhouse's cinematography was magnificent, as close to the majestic opulence of three-strip Technicolor since the process had been discontinued more than a decade earlier. How he didn't get nominated for more awards for his work here, let alone win, still boggles the mind. Yeah, Platoon's a good movie and all, but it didn't look this good. Being one of only two theaters in the entire county to have a four-track optical Dolby stereo system at the time, there was no better theater for me to see the film. Outside of driving to San Jose to see it in 70mm with a six-track magnetic Dolby stereo soundtrack at the town and country, or driving all the way to San Francisco to see it in 70mm at the much better Royal Theater, Robbie Robertson's blues-infected score was mesmerizing, as were the songs he and Scorsese chose to include on the film's soundtrack. Eric Clapton's It's in the Way That You Use It and Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London were the only two songs not written and recorded specifically for the movie. While they would secure new songs from the likes of blues legends B.B. King and Willie Dixon, as well as Don Henley, Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, and a pair of songs from Robert Palmer. The soundtrack would be one of the first two CDs I would buy when I got my first CD player a few weeks later, and it's still an album that gets regular play on my music player. In fact, I was listening to it the entire time I was researching and writing this episode, on a constant loop for days. I easily played it 20 times, and I never got tired of it. It's one of the best soundtracks ever created for a movie, and I hope that someday there will be an expanded soundtrack with more than two of Robertson's score cues on it. I can also tell you that it's my favorite movie starring Tom Cruise. I still wonder to this day what his career would have been like if he had gone the route of being an actor instead of being a movie star. If he had continued to make more movies like Taps, The Color of Money, Rain Man, and Born on the Fourth of July, and less box office money grabs like Cocktail, Days of Thunder, Interview with the Vampire, and, yes, the Mission Impossible series. Watching the movie again this week made me sad to realize how, once again, Hollywood didn't know what to do with actresses who didn't fit into certain boxes. It's a regularly asked question when discussing certain actors. Whatever happened to that person? When you look at Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, she starred in four fairly big movies in the 80s and early 90s. 
Scarface, The Color of Money, The Abyss, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. From there, there were a couple other studio movies like White Sands and The Perfect Storm, which is her final film appearance, and that came out 21 years ago. She's been on television since then with a lot of main and recurring roles in shows like Limitless, The Punisher, and Blindspot, but she really deserved a better film career. Ditto Helen Shaver, who pivoted from acting to directing starting in the late 1990s, where she's directed more than 100 episodes of shows as varied as The Outer Limits, Joan of Arcadia, Law and Order SVU, 13 Reasons Why, Westworld, Snowpiercer, and Lovecraft Country. As of March 1st, 2021, The Color of Money is available to stream for free with ads from YouTube movies, or you can rent an HD copy of the movie from Amazon, Fandango, Google Play, or Vudu for $3.99. Buying an HD copy from the same vendors will put you back a cool $18, which is a little more expensive than the most recent Blu-ray release from 2016. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 